Welcome back. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Zoe J. If you haven't listened to part one, go back. How did you feel about Technicolor? Good entry, <sighs> NAF entry? I really like it. I think it is a fun song. I liked Don't Break Me More, her 2020 song, just as a, from a personal tastes kind of yeah. perspective. I think it was a little more edgy, which I think is the kind of stuff that does well in modern Eurovision. I mean, Technicolor is very like, it's technically a really interesting song. She does a lot of really creative stuff with it musically, but it didn't sort of, I don't know, it just didn't speak to me emotionally in the same way that Don't Break Me did. And maybe that is because I saw Don't Break Me at Australia Decides and I didn't see Technicolor. Um, mm, mm, mm. But I don't know. But I'm really heartbroken that Montaigne was the only artist who had to use her live on tape recording. It sucks because she had like three months less to practice and prepare and refine it than everyone else. So it wasn't sort of equal footing. Yeah. Okay. I will not ask you to personally vouch for how uh, Voyager <laughs> Voyager's lead singer Danny Estrin is doing right now, but, uh, you know, hopes to Danny Estrin out there in the world. Yeah. I'm just saying that. I think a lot of people around the world are sending a lot of hugs and love. I just, it's, it really sucks and I hope he is okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I definitely don't want it to be one of those things where people think about it and then stop thinking about it. You talked on your website about the UK and Eurovision skepticism. Do you just think about Eurovision skepticism in relation to the UK or do you, is your Eurovision skepticism a thing apart from just the UK? Yeah, that was, that project was my sort of entry point into Eurovision research. Um, my sort of original research um, as a PhD student was about human rights and international law. And I still do some of that stuff, but I have gradually sort of muscled my way into full-time research. Um, but that was a project I worked on with Ben Wellings and Catherine Strong, who are Australian sort of Eurovision fans slash researchers. And um, our common interest was sort of British politics at that point. We were all doing sort of Brexity related stuff or Catherine was a musicologist, so she does Britpop kind of things. And so we were really interested in like why Britain sort of sucks at Eurovision. <laughs> um, because historically they didn't, they were one of the sort of powerhouses of it. And so we sort of tracked their progression through Eurovision and then sort of mapped it onto their relationship with the EU and with European politics in general. And it's not that they are sort of identical relationships, but they're sort of parallel ones. And it, we sort of In suggested that uh, like, um, for example, uh, the UK and Eurovision really sort of started to plummet after um, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And like at the time, the British political discourse, like there are, there are quotes from people like Jeremy Corbyn saying that maybe this was because Europeans want to punish Britain for invading Iraq. And if you listen to that song, um, Cry Baby by Gemini, if you watch the video of that song, Amazing it song. is just objectively bad it's just a horrible song I love it I love it so much so bad it's good because with it's it. awful it's just like there's clearly something has gone wrong with their microphones they can't hear themselves properly because they're really pitchy 
it's a very 2003 kind of a song. The guy's got hair so spiky he would, like, cut holes in things. Yeah, yeah. Um, very um, just, Flock of Seagulls. Flock of yeah. Seagulls vibes. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. It's very, I think it is an extreme stretch to suggest that that got null points because of the Iraq war and not because people just did not like the song. So it's a really interesting, like a really funny kind of understanding of politics at Eurovision. Um, and like Britain was, the UK was obviously getting a lot of criticism at the time for the invasion of Iraq, and rightly so, in my opinion. And so it like, that was a particular kind of fracturing point for Britain with the EU. It was also this sort of fracturing point for Britain and Eurovision and there are other points like that when sort of like in the 70s when Britain joined the EU was also sort of quite a high point in their their Eurovision relationship. So like everything is sort of all Europe all the time. It's great. We're getting involved in this European community. The continent is the future. Um, in CMA, so you know, so it's just like yeah. in CMA instead of together 92, it's just like yeah, together exactly. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, okay. And so there are parallels in those two relationships that – are both reflected in British politics in general. The UK as a country politically has always had this very uncomfortable relationship with Europe as a continent, as an idea. They've always sort of had this, politically there's always been this assumption that the EU is for Europeans. Europeans are the, country, the countries that went to war with each other and need right. European integration to like stop them from killing each other. And Britain doesn't need that because it's got this long history of human rights and democracy and we've got Magna Carta and one of the world's oldest parliaments, so we don't need that. We're just joining it because we're sort of interested in the economic benefits, but like yeah, okay, we gonna, don't need it. Yeah. I'm definitely... So yeah, go ahead. There's a similar kind of looking down on Eurovision, I think, especially in the Terry Wogan kind of era. There was this assumption amongst a lot of British people who watched Eurovision that it was like we're watching this ironically we're watching it because it's fun we the British people are the only ones who know that and people from France and Germany and Italy are all doing it deeply seriously and don't realize how silly they look when you ask people British people specifically um and now I'm an I'm an outsider I'm an outsider insider right I've got mm. I'm not culturally British but I've got a British passport Ooh, or maybe I am cultural. Maybe more of it has rubbed off yes, on me than well, I, ugh, maybe that I, yeah, I don't know. It's what all, is culturally British? I know. Who am I? Yeah. Question mark. But um, I think if you asked an Italian, why have we joined the European Union? The answer was to prevent World War III. When you maybe typically ask a British person, why did we join the European Union? The British answer is, to join the customs union. It is a financial decision, right? That yeah. may or may not work. Yeah. Um, to bring this back to Eurovision, why does Eurovision exist, right? So I'm dying to know your, because the, the thing is your view of a thing kind of goes back to its origin story, right? So my mm -hmm. question is what for you is the Eurovision origin story? Why do we watch I love, Eurovision? I love this question because I think there are two answers to it. There's like, the a sort of lovely narrative version that everyone sort of is attached to emotionally. And then there's the answer that I think is the actual kind of thing. So like if you ask 
most people, why does Eurovision exist? People will say, oh, well, in 1956, all the European countries or all the Western European countries at the time came together to unite Europe through song. So it was sort of like the cultural wing of European integration. They had the coal and steel community. They had like the, the Council of Europe and the human rights institutions were being set up at that time as well. And so they also wanted this kind of cultural thing to facilitate a kind of European imagined community and create this connection so that Europeans would not only not fight each other for economic reasons, but also for cultural and musical kind of reasons. And that is the kind of foundation of that way we think about Eurovision now as like love, love, peace, peace, love, love kind so we're, of songs. Pause. We're in a really wonky conversation and I, I'm, mm. I love getting in the weeds. So let's just get further <laughs> into the weeds. That's fine with me. But do you think the answer you just gave, the answer you just gave, viewers won't be able to see my massive thumbs up and my tears of relief <laughs> as, as, as you just gave that answer. But yeah, to me, the answer is Eurovision is the musical equivalent of whatever it is, the European coal and steel, whatever the precursors yeah. were to the European Union, yeah. right? Yeah, that's that's it. Mm. That's it. It's the musical equivalent. And, and that's a boring answer. People don't like, you know, first they're like, <laughs> what's the European coal and steel? What do you think? Before you continue, because you have a real answer, hmm. do you think that a Eurovision fan would give you the kind of answer that you just gave? I think a lot of them would. I don't want to put words in people's mouths. Yeah, I know fine. people just... have their own stories, but it's it's a very common one. It is a fairly straightforward way of understanding the contest. It's an accessible kind of version of the narrative. You and I is... don't just give that answer because we're wonks. That's the point. So yeah, there's some yeah. there's some imagined community general understanding that that's the case probably. Yeah, and I think the EBU in particular works very hard to make people see Eurovision that way. It um, is part of the legitimation of the contest as like it it's part of like because first and foremost it's a television show right, and so they need people to buy into this kind of fantasy that it is worth watching year after year after year and that it is somehow like important enough to keep engaging with and to build bigger audiences and to get bigger sort of sponsorship deals and viewership numbers and stuff because it's a business but they can't ask people to that's not how capitalism works to get people to believe <laughs> in that kind of stuff they need some kind of emotional hook and so they promote this kind of european unity through music kind of narrative it's yeah. like it's what pulls on our heartstrings it's why love peace peace love love worked as a song because it's like a funny tongue-in-cheek kind of version of that story but it does like explicitly refer back to how europe was divided by war and is now united by music catchy key changes and monster ripping off his shirt yeah, hormones. Um, yeah. Hormones. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It all comes back to hormones. Exactly. Yeah. So the the <laughs> show sort of creates this emotional environment. Um, it uses the conventions of television and genre. It uses like we we love it because they announce douze point every every time. So we expect that every time. It uses the suspense of the way they announce the voting now with the difference between the telly vote and the jury vote because they know that makes us emotional. <laughs> so the the show works to make people want to believe that story. It's good storytelling. It's excellent television. What do you think the real answer there? So the real answer to my understanding through my research is that fundamentally what happened in the 50s 
was countries did want, the Western European countries did want a coherent sort of regional broadcasting union because it's convenient to have access to international news. At the time, it was predominantly radio. But they also wanted a song contest to, like, it was just, it's like good television programming. They thought it would be nice, family-friendly entertainment. But they also wanted to harness the modern technology that was television at the time. People were gradually starting to get TVs around this time. Most people still had radios um, and listened to it through that, but it was televised in 1956 and they were like, what can we do to sort of take advantage of this exciting new technology that people are starting to get? And so a song contest was sort of born and it's inspired by like San Rumo already existed in Italy and they had the Festival of British Songs in Britain. (laughs) So the UK was actually quite like influential in the 50s in setting up the European Broadcasting Union and they had a lot of the early conferences in, they had one of their first conferences in Brighton. Um, Britain was originally going to participate in the first one and then for sort of unspecified reasons didn't, but they came in 1957 and have continued to participate since. So it's um, a much more boring but more historically accurate answer. Television broadcasters wanted to use television and encourage people to watch it. Oh gosh, this is really wonky. The word that you used was legitimacy. And of course, you know, there's an idea, like where does legitimacy come from? Like, why do we think that our police are legitimate, for example? And in America, we might not feel that way anymore, but or doctors, there's a good example. Why do you trust a guy wearing a white coat? And the answer is you understand that they've gone through some kind of rigorous, you understand the rigor that they've gone through in becoming a doctor and that has weight with you as a person, for example. Um, and some governments might be perceived as more legitimate than others for any various numbers of reasons, but this perception of legitimacy is a thing. Do you think Eurovision is still legitimate in the way that you're talking about, like the OG. Ooh. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. like is, is Eurovision mm. fun for me because it's better as an entertainment? Because you've talked about two things. You've talked about the emotion that Eurovision brings out, but also mm. its legitimacy as like what it was founded on and these values, air quotes values, whether it follows them or not. So, I mean, maybe it's some interplay of the two, but I guess... Do Eurovision fans perceive it as like legitimately a different thing, a more important thing because of its origin than something like The Voice? I mean, I think you have to like it, like if it, if it didn't have those kind of narratives, if it didn't have that sort of country competition, it would literally just be The Voice. We have a sort of concrete counterexample to like analyze whether that is the case in the sort of failed attempt at the American Song Contest because like I've I followed I didn't follow the contest itself super closely but I did follow the sort of Twitter discourses around it and it was really fascinating to watch fans of Eurovision watching it and Americans watching it because the the sort of dominant thing that people talked about in both of them was this isn't interesting because none of these countries went to war with each other or none of these American states, which is inaccurate because like the U S has had, like it did have a very brutal civil war (laughs) amongst the states. Um, And there are sort of internal conflicts and there's a lot of diversity in the U S that 
permeates its music culture, but it's not the same kind of, it doesn't sit in people's memories as a war in the same kind of way as World War II does. It's not a modern war with tanks and bombs. And, and so people watched that show and were like, well, I don't feel anything for this. It is just like The Voice or American Idol or something because it's just a song contest. Whereas Eurovision has this narrative and this purpose and it's about keeping diverse Europeans united through song and that's why I love it. So people really do a lot of the time buy into that narrative and it is an important part of its legitimacy. But I think there's also sort of an important caveat to that in like I always talk to my students about this there's like a um when you're talking about things being socially constructed and that sort of legitimacy narrative is something that was constructed by the EBU and is continues to be sort of constructed and reconstructed and remade by fans and audiences and stuff it can be constructed but it can also still be real so I don't mean that like the emotions we feel when we love songs or like that when we hear the Todayum at the start of Eurovision they are real feelings but they are also they exist in a context that encourages you to feel those feelings as well. So your work is about fans right and fan diplomats Mm. and um, maybe I might think about these fan diplomats as like the blue helmets you know, like the UN peacekeeper. Like the UN peacekeeper. Yeah. So maybe, maybe a, fan, a Eurovision fan could consider themselves as like a kind of a European, um, yeah, like a like a like like a peacekeeper. One day a year. Yeah. One day a year. I don't mean three hundred and sixty-four other days a year. I just mean they go into the event consciously knowing that this is an event where, where we are supposed to care about each other and build bridges. And, and that's, that's their job as a fan. They have, they, they're tasked with something right in a way that maybe they aren't otherwise. Yeah. I would say there's like a, I think a lot of people, myself included, I think like, I don't want to talk about fans as like an abstract group of people that I'm not attached to. I am a fan too. Like there's a responsibility. Yes. That comes along with being a fan. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Like to love something is to care about it and to care requires work and effort. And it's not like, it's not a burden to do that work most of the time, but it is something you have to practice and do regularly and think consciously about to make sure that you are sort of continuing to look after it the way it needs. And so there is a kind of, you could use peacekeeping as an an analogy. You could also use something like family as an analogy. It just sort of depends where you're personal analogy leanings I mean the other you, the guess. other analogy leaning I had was like the royal family where it's yeah. like where it's like Eurovision is a head of state right it's a it's mm. a hereditary head of state that shows up once a year to give you a fruitcake or I don't know they you know yeah. they they bring you a nice a nice gift and you have a nice conversation around a round table and what the what the actual tangible benefits of that are I don't know but it's, it's some kind <laughs> of yeah yeah, it's like a, it's a, that's a good one, actually. It's like a ceremonial kind of reminder of your place because, like, the king shows up once a year to give his speech to parliament so that the the ordinary pleb people can be reminded <laughs> that they have a king. Right. Um, and, and so Eurovision just sort of shows up once a year and says, yes, remember why it is good to be a European, all these privileges and advantages that you have, you should 
Like, just FYI, we created those for you. That makes it sound very sinister. No, and the, like, the, you know, the, it is, yeah. the British royal family's legitimacy comes from the fact that, what, they've been there a really long time. It's just like yeah. the amount of history. So maybe Eurovision yeah, exactly. similarly has just been here comparatively a really long time. Yeah. And so, it, so that it continuity. Really, it has in the, the history of television. It is one of the longest running continuous televised events in the world. It has that kind of, um, like, timeless legitimacy like um there are sociologists who like max weber sort of classical yeah, yeah. social theorist writes about legitimacy that comes from tradition and eurovision yeah. is very heavily structured around the tradition of things like announcing douze points starting with tedeum at the beginning speaking in french and english all these sort of tropes and mechanisms of of genre that make us recognize Eurovision as Eurovision as opposed to American Idol or something. For sure, like the opening song that also sounds like a march. You know, it's an anthem. Yeah. Like, da, 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 da. Yeah. Fun fact, I know da, someone's da. um someone's parents got married to that song without knowing oh it was God. the Eurovision song. So can you imagine <laughs> if that was your that was kind of like you'd gotten married to it and then you watched it yearly? No. Yeah. And then everyone is like, oh the Eurovision song. And you're like, no, it's a beautiful wedding song. Yeah. Can you think of any examples of being a bad Eurovision diplomat, like a bad fan mm. diplomat? What would be some examples of being a bad fan diplomat? Because I just thought about myself. I just thought to myself, when the broadcast is going on, people are so polite. And I don't mean afterwards, because there's like there's some crazy cattiness afterwards. Let's just forget afterwards. Mm. But during the broadcast itself, for example, I can't imagine booing another country. And I can at a football mm. game or a World Cup game, although it'd be, I think, in bad taste, but then I'm old. You get what I'm saying. Like, I, there's a certain decorum yeah. that's expected, I think, as you, in the run-up and the day of. Like, what do you think would be bad Eurovision fan decorum? Yeah, I think... Diplomat. Is, diplomat. Yeah. Fan diplomat decorum. Yeah. Un, undiplomatic behavior. Yeah. Like maybe, like, booing is a really good example. But it, I think it depends what the booing is targeting. Like, if everyone is just sort of booing a country because they really don't like the song, then it's it's pretty cruel and it's pretty horrible for the, the artists. Or like last year when everyone sort of got really angry about Ronella's song, um, Secret, and the, the costume oh, changes yeah, yeah. and stuff during the rehearsals, that must have been a really awful experience for her as an artist. So maybe that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, like there is an example of Eurovision fans booing an artist in... 2015, when Russia sent, um, what's her name, Paulina Gagarina, yep. with that, that song, A Million Voices, and she's wearing the white dress. Um, yeah, yeah. And so she's singing this song about everyone uniting, bringing a million diverse voices together at the same time as Russia has invaded Crimea and Ukraine can't participate that year because they are busy trying to defend their territory from an imperial power. And so the booing is maybe not very diplomatic behavior, but I don't think it's necessarily the artist that was problem being booed. It's yeah, it's not. I don't think it's problematic behavior in and of itself. It is. It shifts from being sort of diplomacy to activism, maybe, which is a fairly fluid relationship. At no, the best of times. I like I like thinking but, about this. I mean, I think yeah. when people complained about Ukraine winning about Kalush winning, I thought, hmm. what other day can citizens of European countries voice their dissent, right? This is it. This is this, yeah. this silly song contest yeah. is the only time when I, sitting at home, 
can give the middle finger to Vladimir Putin or whatever. Yeah. So if that's my form of activism, it's just like a vote and I wanted to let my beef be known. Hmm. What's wrong with that? Exactly. And that is powerful. And I like when people say, oh, Ukraine won because it's political. I'm like, yeah, of course it was political. It is meant to be like Ukraine came to Eurovision at great sort of personal and national costs. That was very difficult. It is very difficult for them to continue to participate. It is expensive, but it is important because it is a middle finger to Russia and like people voting for them. And like Stefanio is a, is a great song. So it's not unjust musically. It's just sort of this, like music is at its best when it speaks to you emotionally. And sometimes that's because a sad love song is released at the same time as you break up with a boyfriend. And sometimes it's because it speaks to a particular sort of political or cultural moment in like the global zeitgeist. And Stephania did that. Um, and 1944 did that in 2016 as well. And so these, like, there's a, you can't separate politics in an emotional sense from like that kind of but i think it made situation fan, fan diplomats out of people mm-hmm. that maybe didn't care about eurovision just sitting on their sofa like the most casual of casual viewers mm-hmm. that were like that maybe even like mock it like oh this is there's nothing else on tv right i'm gonna watch yeah. eurovision and this is a joke and whatever else i think quite a few of those people voted so in that way it yeah. made them diplomats on a day that they wouldn't for an event that they maybe didn't even care about yeah, exactly, because they wanted to express support for a country that needed support and there's that's that's not a problematic use of voting. That's like what voting is for in any other context than Eurovision. It can be that way at Eurovision as well. So it does sort of the fact that you vote for other countries inherently puts you in a position of thinking about like other nations and the implications of your choices on other people in other parts of the world. That's an amazing way to look at it. I um yeah. I will stop I will get on to our I swear to gosh, I will get on to our stuff in a minute here. I um I was reading a book yesterday about um I think a lot now about behavior and design, web design specifically because you've mm-hmm. only got 8 seconds to change somebody's mind, right? You don't have 35 minutes. Yeah. But um the book made this point that the scholars made this point that Art can only be produced by one person, but it is likely to not be palatable by audiences. And things that are palatable by audiences are best done in committee, but that way you don't get art. Hmm. And I wonder if that's what happened to Ronella. Yeah. That's like um, my opinion of what happened to Ronella. She was an artist. And I keep calling her Ronella in like an American. Ronella. Yeah, I think she was an artist. She came in with artistic vision and she got committed into, uh, Mm. into submission. Yeah, I think that seems to happen increasingly at Eurovision. That, that like the the fandom can be particular about their tastes is maybe the diplomatic way of phrasing that. Um, but the brought like the artists themselves can kind of like light sound came in with what is essentially a committed Eurovision song. It was extremely well polished it was very like these are themes that people will like at eurovision and we will put them all together we will stitch them we will frankenstein them together into a song yeah Yeah, and it was not appealing to most people (laughs) 
it did not qualify. It didn't make it through the semis. Um, I was very heartbroken by it, but I don't think anyone else particularly was that fussed about it not making it through. That's the way my so, uh, my son was about Circus Mercus in uh, yeah in uh, yeah at Turin. All right, mm. entries number one. We are yeah. the heroes. Not not it's not the other song. It's not Mons. It is by Light Sound mm -hmm. Belarus twenty twelve. Yeah, you said Mons this is, is a plagiarist. He stole their idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll take that. There's not been a lot no, of joking. love for Mons recently on the on the podcast. And oh that's, no, that's I love Mons. I'm joking. I just I think Mons takes the themes of heroes and really like he has a much more sophisticated perspective on it than Light Sound. Maybe, maybe. Basically, there was a different winner that was supposed to mm. represent Belarus at the time, uh, Aliona Lankskaya, but there was a voting kerfuffle. Do you know about the yeah, voting kerfuffle? Yeah. Tell us about there the voting a, kerfuffle. So if I remember correctly, like at the time she was announced the, as the winner in their yeah. national selection and yeah. everyone was like, what? Like, why? Because like, I didn't vote for her. Did you vote for her? I liked these other guys. Um, and so I think there was a push for a recount and it was sort of discovered that there were a little bit of, there was a bit of book fiddling going on behind the scenes is my memory of it. And so Light Sound were sort of, reinstated as the more legitimate democratic if you will. legitimate yes winners of the national selection and made it to eurovision where they disgraced themselves by not qualifying oh i don't oh, think they disgraced they just no. weren't as good as the other it's fine no it happens my notes here say that on the 21st of february 2012 the belarusian president conducted an investigation and i assume mm. they mean the actual president of actual belarus Yes. The entire country dropped everything yes. to recount the televote. To use a sports analogy, they're like the Stephen Bradbury's of Eurovision. Absolutely. Do you know that guy? No. The, the Australian uh, Winter Olympics in, what year was that? When I don't remember. There was an, a Winter Olympics when I was a kid where um, this, what's that sport where it's like, it's ice skating and they're running around in a circle. It's like a roller track, derby track, kind Short of. track speed skating. Yeah, so the speed skater, um, Stephen, like Australia is not a Winter Olympics. Kind I get of that. I'm country, shocked that you're. I'm obviously. shocked that you're. Yeah, but this guy, Stephen Bradbury, won gold in the speed skating because four other people in front of him fell over. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they were like, doping. Yeah, fine, fair enough. No, they all. So one, the person in first place fell over, and then the second sort of landed in a pile up. It was quite awful. Like it's not a great. Not for Stephen Bradbury. This, but for Stephen Bradbury, he sort of like, he just whooshed past and all of a sudden was in first place. And like, you can see this look on his face on the YouTube video. He's like, oh my God, I've won. And so to Stephen Bradbury is to sort of, to win when no one believed you were going to be because of circumstances you didn't really have control over. It's like, like a other verb now, like down. other Australians yeah. would know, like you, I could say, oh, he's Stephen Bradbury and you would know exactly yeah. what I meant. Yeah, exactly. Delightful. So light sounder the Stephen Bradbury of the Belarusian national selection in 2012. Two thumbs up, two thumbs yeah. up. And they did not, you know, that, that does, to be Stephen Bradbury, you still have to be a very good skater. So, hey, ho, that's just the way the exactly. game is played. Don't yeah. be mad at he him. He got into the Olympics. It's Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Entry number two, Sound of Silence, Demi Im, Australia 2016. And yeah, why do you love this song? I just, it's so powerful. I, um, We've talked a lot about nationalism and this 
song is the source of my national awakening. Basically, I um, I never really understood why people cared about national identity growing up. I was like, uh, this is so stupid. It's so obviously loaded as a political kind of what? Why would you buy into this thing that causes wars and border violence and stuff? It's just like not something I'm interested in. And then. Australia was allowed into Eurovision and in 2016 we sent Dami and she sat on that big sparkly block of antimatter, that plinth from Space Odyssey, like, and sang that song and I was like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> like, I am proud to be from the same place as this person. I just, I want to claim some kind of connection to this woman because this song just makes it gives me shivers. It makes me want to cry. I just love it. And she is so phenomenal while she's singing it. So it just sort of awakened this connection to my home country that did not exist in me before I heard the song. Did you know who Dami Im was before? Yeah. I was not sort of a huge fan of shows like The The Voice and Australian Idol and stuff. I forget which one she was on. Um, it might have been The Voice. But, uh, like, I knew of her. She was already fairly well known in Australian music as this powerful kind of ballad singer. So I'd heard her perform on TV before and was a big fan. So I was quite excited when she was chosen, but I didn't expect the emotional reaction that I had when I saw her actually perform. Yeah, I get the feeling that you like beautiful songs, like technically perfect songs, like pretty songs. Yeah, yeah. I have a soft spot for Lorene as well. She's very, like Dami and Lorene, I think, have very similar musical styles. I like that kind yeah. of, they're not quite ballads exactly. They're not the sad, slow, toilet break kind I of songs. I would call this an anthem. I would call yeah, this a bit of an yeah. anthem. I would call this a yeah, bit that's of a better it's, term. It's belty. It's it's mm. but not in a hammy way. Like it's um, Yeah. Yeah. I admire these women because they have a lung capacity I can only dream of. I can't do these songs in karaoke as much as I love them because I just do not have the range or the I can't do the belt. Please tell me that you found like a Eurovision karaoke in Finland. I think it is every karaoke. Like there are karaoke's <laughs> in Finland like there are Starbucks in America. It's a big part of Finnish culture. So oh. um, I'm sure there are plenty that have Eurovision songs available in them. And certainly the OGA Finland does a lot of Eurovision karaoke at their events. A pub full of Finns trying to pull mm. off cha-cha-cha maybe less successfully. I've seen people doing cha-cha-cha and they're pretty like good at it in general. Even sort of casual Garia fans are very familiar with it now. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All right. I talked about Sound of Silence um, about a year ago. And my takeaway at the time was that she seemed like a little... You know how you get those music boxes when you're a little girl, maybe, yeah. and they open up and there's like a little... Yeah. So and the, you twist them and they dance. Yeah, yeah the, the plinth, very nice. The plinth to me seemed like she'd come out mm. of, you know, a square glitter box mm. and that she was kind of perched there. But I'm wondering, all three of your submissions to me are beautiful songs, but I think they all have staging issues. Mm. I feel like she was too... Still, that's my takeaway. I think she, I mean, she, it's hard to do better than second place. She did, second place is tough. Mm. Um, 2016 is a tough year. 
do you, would you have changed the staging of this in any way? Did you like the plinth? Mm, I quite like the plinth. I think I I think it's actually very difficult for um, still artists to control a room, especially one as large as the Stockholm Arena. Um, and I think she did it very well. My beef with the staging is that little thing she does where she like waves her hand and she's got the sort of technical projections in front of her because everyone that year sort of following months, there were a lot of those kind of let's use visuals in a way that like let's copy months. And so I thought that was a bit, it's just a bit cheap compared to the rest of the yeah, it's a bit CNN weather people. Yeah. You know how the weather people, oh God. Yeah, like. they're like, let's look up at the screen and they bring up the mm. the figures and the weather, yeah. I find, there's something else I find problematic about that, which is the something obstructing, something between you and the artist. I was a little bit worried mm. for Sam Ryder with that kind of the architectural rocket ship. Last submission is this, No Degree of Separation by Francesca Michelin, or Michelin probably in Italian. Mm. Why do you like the song? This is one of the first Eurovision songs Mm. that I remember for having average feelings about it. (laughs) I find it very pretty. I think you are. I I think it's funny that you think that Light Sound is a beautiful song (laughs) because I picked it because it's like, I think of it as bad. Um, I love it personally, but I think of it as like a cringe no, I think soft rock song. Yeah, but a beautiful mm. in the sense that their voices are pretty. Yeah, and their faces also. And their fa- um, oh Yes, so it's beautiful in that way. <laughs> uh, but Francesca's voice is very pretty. I like slow songs. I don't, uh, I said this before, I'm sorry for repeating no, myself. No. I don't like ballads, but I do like slow, quiet songs. But you liked it. You, do you like the lyrics? Yeah. Do you like the music? Do you like the staging? All of it just lovely and um, slow and transports you. I just love her overalls so much. Like the little, <laughs> the little sparkly gardening overalls that she's wearing. Um, I'm a big, I'm literally wearing floral yes. overalls as we speak. They've got sunflowers on them I just they're very comfortable attire in general and hers are very pretty she's got um, pretty overalls yeah okay. I mean I also really like the song I, I think it's a nice quiet pretty song I don't speak Italian at all so I have no sort of ability to comment on its its language capacity I just sort of it just vibes with me in a way that I like I don't have a sort of political or a personal emotional story behind it I just like it did you like the staging as well as the overalls as well as the pretty Uh, overall because the staging was very hmm. pretty air quotes pretty I don't know if it was successful but it was pretty I feel like possibly what happened is they picked the outfit and then thought we need to come up with staging that matches this outfit yeah because the staging is is fine it's inoffensive it's pretty I like at the end she sort of Somehow she pulls an apple out of nowhere. I don't know where that comes from, but she's just suddenly holding an apple. Maybe it came out of her pocket. I was definitely vaguely offended by, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to, I was vaguely offended <laughs> by this song. I think, so there is a thing at Eurovision where every now and then somebody will pick like a political issue and just like write mm. a song around it because it's a big stage and like, here's mm. a political issue. I assumed that this was environmentalism. I assumed that the whole song was about Mm. environmentalism, I think because of the staging. And I was really confused. I thought it was like a radish. It was like a sprouting radish. Oh yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's a potato. I don't know. It's just sort of a generic ground thing with a leaf sprouting out of it. 
It was, yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, I was waiting for like an eco, a super eco conscious. And when I listened to it this time around, I didn't hear that. I just heard the song without the staging now is not an eco song for me. And I don't know. I think it was just one of those songs I was confused by and thought it had a hard hitting message that I was supposed to get. I will say that I feel the staging is a bit the way I feel about weddings you know, where it's just very mm. hard to fill a big space. Like in the background, it turns out it's just um, silk flowers, like from the hobby store yeah. and mm. some balloons and like six balloons. And yeah. I, it's a bit like a primary school leavers dinner kind of aesthetic. <laughs> two thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe if she'd changed the staging, I leave the overalls, leave the song. Mm. Maybe if she changed the staging, I would have had different feelings about this. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you thought it could have the environmental message because I've I've never read that into like I've never heard the song as having that kind of message. And it's just purely from was, the staging, I think. I think it's yeah, purely from yeah. the staging. I think I saw the staging and I was like, oh, here we go. Here's somebody with like a very serious message, and the music yeah. comes after it, and everything else kind of comes after. Mm. That's why um, I think they they picked the costume first and they were like, well, she's got these very cute little overalls and she looks lovely in those. What can, like, what do we do with her in them on this space? Oh, well, overalls are what you wear in the garden. I don't know. Let's put her in a garden. It feels half-baked, you know, yes. kind of. Yeah. Like they had one element and they were like, now we must sort of jam a round hole into a square peg to suit this element instead of going, how does this sort of work as a story as a whole it's a similar maybe like I don't think it's as egregious a staging error as like who was the country that had that song in the hot air balloon was that Austria yeah I think it was yeah was the song called born to try maybe it was Ireland I'm getting Austria and Ireland sense similar yeah fine not great songs a lot of the time and I get them muddled but um there was a song where someone was like standing in a hot air balloon and it was like, did you, did you let like someone from accounting do this staging design? Was the, like the creative director sick this week? Why did you make this choice? Like what is the symbolism going on here? Cause I can't tell. And I think maybe the garden situation is not as severe an instance, but it is a similar instance of that kind of, Someone dropped a ball somewhere. For sure. And if you want to feel more like that, which you probably don't. So you sent me a version of this. When we can, we try to get in the the actual Eurovision performances Mm. of these so we can talk about staging as well. You sent me a version of this with the live staging, um, but I can't see it because I'm locked out due to to (gasps) country restrictions. Geo-blocking, no. It strikes again, strikes again. So I had to watch the official video for this. And if you get a minute, I mean, I'll include it in the show, mm. show notes, but the official video is also very like, why, why did you make these decisions? In the official video, she's got people in 3D glasses. Like all of her entourage mm. is in like, you know, the blue, blue, red glasses. And then they're passing around a balloon. Yeah. I mean, that at least is sort of about people and you can sort of go okay this is a sort of generic Eurovision diversity kind of a song we're all in it together we're all different but we're all the same kind of a like Eurovision loves those kind of songs um so it does at least sort of try to do that a little bit more in the official music video but the yeah my my attachment to the song is because 
I like listening to it as sort of background. I like the sound of Italian in music. It's yeah, just very pretty yeah, to have yeah. on while I am doing things. I don't sort of, it's sort of a bit like how, like if you're in a plane, it's fine and you're not afraid of flying unless you stop and think about how planes work and then you're like, oh, God, this is we're all going <laughs> to fall out of the sky. And this song, I really like it if I don't think too closely about it. All right, so closing up, thank you for being here, I should say that. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's oh. been so fun. I will gladly talk about Eurovision all day, any day. For sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll come back again. I would love to, anytime. Is there anything that you need from fans? So I know that you, you're doing your research. Is there anything that you, a shout out for something that we could do for you, us fan <gasps> diplomats? Well, at the moment, you can have a look at my website. Um, so partly so you can see what the project is about and partly because it will help boost my sort of visitation numbers, which is good for, um, I'm funded for, to do this research by the Kone Foundation in Finland. And it's nice to be able to report back to them that I have, my research has impact, which is maybe a slightly cynical way of thinking about it. But it's not. You can check out the website, eurovisionaries.com. And then in the coming months, eventually I will get my act together and we'll get sort of everything, all my ducks in a row in order to be able to start doing interviews with fans. So keep an eye out on the project website and on my Twitter account maybe for details about how to like get involved if you are interested in sort of talking to me about your experiences as a fan. Oh, I know lots of people will be interested in yeah. talking to you. We all of Zoe's information and the Eurovisionaries project, all the links will be in the show notes or in the description, your podcast description area. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug? No, just, just the website, which okay. we've done. So all is well. Excellent. Thank yeah. you for being with me today. Thanks for having me. That's it for Eurovision Song Context for the moment. We release an episode on the 12th of every month, The Doozith. You can find us on the podcast app of your choice. You can find show notes in the description of this episode and on our website. I'm also on Twitter at ESC Context if you want to say hi. Our music is Buckeye Bonsai by Vans in Japan. Mm -hmm.